Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. You shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself and there a woman was lying at his feet and he said, who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So she laid his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also, he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured out six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, these six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, do not go empty handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Again, thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the words that it contains, the message of hope and salvation. And now, Lord, as we are ready to hear your word preached and expounded, Lord, we pray that you give us by your spirit understanding so we will see... Uh, what you want us to see and hear what you want us to hear from your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from time to time, my wife and I, probably her more so than me, enjoy watching romantic comedies. Now, I hope I'm not, like, ruining my man-card reputation by saying that I watch a romantic comedy from time to time, but so be it. Now, usually these comedies, these movies, they're lighthearted affairs, right? With a very simple plot structure. You've got a boy, boy meets girl, boy and girl fall in love. Some problem arises that separate boy and girl. And then the problem is resolved and boy and girl go and live happily ever after. Now, the tension in all of these movies, the tension in all these stories 
And what makes them interesting from other stories is the problem. Is what is it that drives these two apart? And then how is that problem resolved so that they come back together again at the end of the story? In a lot of ways, the story of the book of Ruth is a love story. Now, it's not just a love story, but in a lot of ways, it is a love story. You have Ruth and Boaz last week. Ruth and Boaz met. Ruth and Boaz become attracted to one another. And now we're about to enter into that part of the plot where the problem arises. That's something that is going to keep these two separated until it finds some kind of resolution. As one person who wrote about this chapter says, this chapter teems with carefully contrived ambiguity and sexual innuendo. We're going to be introduced to this famous threshing floor scene in Ruth chapter 3. And if you know anything about threshing floors in the Old Testament, usually risky stuff happened in the threshing room floor. They're not known for being places that good things happen. And the, this, it's a setting which often suggested sexual compromise. Ruth and Boaz are going to be thrust into the crucible of moral choice. They're going to have to choose. Will they live according to Hesed? Will they live according to the kindness that they've shown one another? Will they continue to live worthy lives? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, just a review to see how we got here. Uh, again, looking at Ruth chapter 1, if you remember, a couple weeks ago. Uh, Ruth chapter 1. Uh, Ruth, or Naomi and her family leave Bethlehem because there's a family. They go to Moab. Uh, then there, when, uh, while they're in Moab, Ruth's husband dies. And then Ruth's two sons die. And then Naomi has to come back. To Bethlehem, and all she has with her is her daughter-in-law Ruth. And when she comes back, she she wails to the women of the town. Naomi says, uh, "I have I went away full, and I've come back empty. The Lord has gone out heavy against me." But then in Ruth chapter two, we see a little bit of hope. We see a little bit of uh, the light at the end of the tunnel, as it is they return to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And then Ruth, with Naomi's permission. She goes out to glean in the fields. And we notice that she just so happens to find herself in the field of Boaz. And Boaz just so happens to notice Ruth as she was gleaning. And we talked about God's invisible hand bringing these two people together. And after learning who Ruth was, Boaz then shows her above and beyond kindness by offering her his protection and a place to work safely for the remainder of the harvest. In fact, we see Boaz go even beyond what he's supposed to doing by instructing his workers to be careless in their, in their harvesting so that Ruth can glean more and more. He is showing her kindness. And then we notice that chapter 2 ends when Naomi learns the identity of Ruth's benefactor when she finds out that it is Boaz, a worthy man from her husband's family, a redeemer. Or as the text here says, a close relative. A redeemer really is the better word choice there. So now as we move into the third act of our little story here, we're going to see three scenes unfold. Scene one that we're going to see is Naomi's going to play matchmaker as she tries to get Ruth and Boaz together in verses 1 through 5. And then in verses 6 to 13, we're going to see in scene two, this midnight encounter on the threshing room floor. What's going to happen? How will this play out? 
And then in verses 14 through 18, scene three of act three, we're going to see a potential flaw in the plan, a potential flaw that may keep these two people apart. But through it all, the big idea for this morning is that we're going to see is that the Lord moves to redeem his people. Very simply put, the Lord moves to redeem his people. So as we look at the first scene of Act 3, verses 1 through 5, scene 1 picks up where we left off last week, and it was at the end of the barley harvest, the end of the wheat and barley harvest. This would have been about a span of time of about six to eight weeks in, in total. And from what we can glean from the text, see what I did there, a little wordplay, what we can glean from the text, uh, there was no progress in the relationship between Ruth and Boaz. Boaz shows Ruth all this kindness at the beginning of chapter 2, but then by the end of the harvest, it doesn't look like things are picking up. So maybe Naomi here feels like she needs to sort of kickstart this little, this little romance going here. So perhaps sensing that the, the end of the harvest meant the end of Ruth's window of opportunity, Naomi decides to come up with a plan for Ruth. Now, as I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think of the movie, The Fiddler on the Roof. If you're familiar with that movie and one of the famous songs in The Fiddler on the Roof is the Matchmaker song, in which says, it goes, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, find me a find, catch me a catch. That's what Naomi's doing here. Naomi is playing the role of the matchmaker. She's not going to be the one that's going to get married, but she can at least try to see if she can get Ruth married to somebody. So she tells Ruth, my daughter, should I not find rest for you, that it may be well with you. It's the same language that Naomi used back in chapter one in Moab when she urged both of her daughters-in-law after the death of her husband and her sons to go back to their family. She's like, look, you have no prospects with me, so go back home, go back and find rest in the houses of your husbands. In other words, you, you have no opportunities with me. You might as well go back home. That's where your best bet is going to be. Now, perhaps it's not as prevalent now, but back in Old Testament times, it was not seen as good for a young woman to remain single. According to the Old Testament customs, according to their way of life, marriage is what brought security and blessing and fulfillment to the lives of both men and women. Now, I do want to say that marriage is a wonderful thing. It's a blessed institution. We, we highly revere marriage. We, you know, many marriages here, uh, is, I, I'm amazed to see, have, have lasted 50, 60 years. It's, it's a blessing to see such long and prosperous marriages. And it's the foundation for our society. But we also don't want to suggest in this that single life has no meaning, has no value. But the Bible does, doesn't teach that that uh, single life has no purpose, and nor should we. We should recognize that singleness is also something that can be used for the Lord, because if you're single, you can divert almost all your entire energies to the work of the kingdom. Now, perhaps Naomi senses that Ruth, being a foreigner, being a Moabite, will not have as many uh, suitable partners, because she is a foreigner. Perhaps she's not going to find anybody there to, to marry. So she... She, she then takes it upon herself then to come up with a plan. And the plan is in verses 2 through 4. Now, Naomi's plan is risky, or maybe the better word is risque, in, to say the least. 
It is a calculated plan that involves Ruth catching Boaz at just the right time and then letting things run their natural course as things happen with men and women. She says the timing has to be right. It has to be after he has finished winnowing his barley in verse 2. After he has finished eating and drinking so that his heart is merry in verse 3. And then the meeting needs to be at midnight to avoid the town gossips. So then in verse 3, Naomi urges Ruth to then make herself sparkle, right? She says, go bathe yourself. Go put some perfume on and put on your best cloak. And here, go out and make yourself attractive and enticing. And then the crucial part of Naomi's plan is the encounter. This is how it's going to work. So she tells her, okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going to find out where he falls asleep. You're going to uncover his feet and you're going to lie down. And then he will tell you what to do. Now, okay, you read the text. It's like, okay, well, okay, uncover his feet, lie down. Doesn't sound so bad, right? Well, the point is that these phrases, uncover your feet and lie down, are, they have double meaning. They, they are ambiguous. They have sexual overtones in them. The word uncover is the same word that you see used many, many times in Leviticus 18 regarding restrictions on sexual intercourse. All throughout that chapter, you see, you shall not uncover the nakedness of so on and so forth. It goes down. It means to literally declothe somebody. And of course, the word lie down there is also the same word that Mrs. Potiphar used in Genesis 39 when she was chasing Joseph around the palace saying, come lie down with me. She wasn't talking about coming and taking a little nap with me in the summertime. She was talking about something else. We've got words that we use in English too, right? Um, maybe this is a little too old, but we talked about, you know, maybe you go out and you're going to go parking. You're going to go parking. It doesn't mean you're going to go park your car, right? I mean, there's a double meaning to some of these things. We know what we mean when we say them. And that's what's going on here. Naomi is using this ambiguous language to be somewhat suggestive. Okay, go uncover his feet. Go lie down and then he's going to tell you what to do. Now, at this point in the narrative, we don't know for certain if Naomi is actually literally suggesting that Ruth seduce Boaz or she's just prompting Ruth to take a risky choice here, to go out and take a, a risky invitation to Boaz to act as a kinsman redeemer. And again, this language in verse four is intentionally vague. It is meant to heighten the dramatic tension in the story. What's Ruth going to do? How will she act? How will Boaz react when she does these things? It's not an overstatement to say that Ruth is being told to put herself in a very compromising and dangerous position. Her very reputation is at stake. The very reputation that actually attracted Boaz to her in the first place. And then in verse 5, Ruth replies with a very simple statement. She says, all you say, I will do. Whatever you tell me, that's what I'm going to do. Now, all throughout this series in Ruth, we've been talking about the invisible hand of the Lord, how the Lord is working behind the scenes, sovereignly orchestrating events to bring his glory to his name, but also to bless his people. And we certainly believe in a God who is sovereign, right? A God who is in control of all things that happen. 
Our confessional standards also teach that God not only ordains the ends, but also ordains the means. And what I mean by that is, let's say God ordained that Nebraska football team would win the national championship this year. That's the end, okay? But he's also going to ordain the means to that end. So the means to that end would be that Nebraska would crush Wisconsin and Iowa and Ohio State by defeating them very badly. That, that would be ordaining the means as well. Now, one can't help but wonder if Naomi's plan here is an attempt to help God along. You know what I mean by that? Much like Sarah and Abraham did in uh, Genesis 16, God made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many children. But you look at Abraham, Abraham was 90-something years old. Sarah was about 90-something years old. And they are probably doing the math and probably figuring out, no, we're not going to have kids the natural way. We're just way, way, way too old. So we need to kind of help God along in his plan. And then, of course, that plan backfires on them, right? Have any of you maybe been perhaps tempted to help God along? By that mean taking matters into your own hands in an attempt to accomplish God's will? For example, let's, let's talk about the story of a guy. Let's call him Carl, let's say. And let's say Carl believes that he has a desire to serve God in the ministry and to, to serve the church, but he wants to do it in a way that is sort of pushing things along too fast. And let's say his wife, let's call her Linda, just for sake of argument. She says, look, you know, you have other obligations in the home to take care of. You can't just drop everything and go to seminary. You need to wait for the right timing. And let's say Carl, you know, this guy, Carl, he says, no, 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 no. I really feel this is God's will for my life. I got to do this. I got to do this. So we're going to do it. And, and then that, you know, because you're trying to push a God's plan in your own timing, things don't work out as well as you want them to. Well, thanks be to God, he can redeem even these botched attempts on our part to further his plans, right? Now, we shouldn't use this story in Ruth to concoct risky plans and then trust God's providence to deliver us. This is not an excuse to come up with all kinds of weird ways to do things and say, okay, well, God, you can correct this. You can make a straight line out of the crooked line that I just drew here. But it is to say that God's providence does correct these things. God can use even our sin, our mistakes, our poor choices for his glory. Now, as the first uh, scene of Act 3 comes to a close, we're left to wonder if Naomi's plan will succeed or will it be given as sort of like a divine no, you know, like will God say no, like he told Sarah and Abraham. Now, it's interesting because our Lord was also tempted, right? Our Lord was tempted by Satan himself to find a shortcut to accomplishing the will of the Father. In Matthew 4, 8, it is said that the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory and said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan was tempting the Lord to shortcut God's plan for having the kingdom by taking them by force, by listening to Satan. Later on, as he was facing the shadow of the cross, he prayed to the Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will be done, not as I will. In other words, again, he wanted to shortcut the cross. He wanted, you know, there was the temptation to shortcut the cross. But again, thanks be to God, Jesus took no shortcuts for us. 
He was never tempted to help God along by shortcutting his will for our lives. And aren't you glad for that? Because if Jesus didn't go to the cross, then our sins are not forgiven. Our salvation was made possible because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, accomplished God's will using God's means. Well, now as we go to our, as we enter into scene two of Act three, uh, verses six six through 13, the midnight encounter. So in verse 6, we're told that Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. She waited at the threshing floor uh, for Boaz to finish his widowing. And then we're told that Boaz's heart was merry or that he was cheerful after eating and drinking. Of course, the end of the harvest was generally a time of great celebration and merrymaking, especially after a bountiful harvest, especially after a bountiful harvest, after many, many years of famine, right? And the question arises, of course, was Boaz drunk? Did he drink a little too much? Was his heart maybe a little too merry or something, you know? Um, And I think what we could see from the text is that no, the language here does not suggest that he was drunk. Well, we also say that we know from Boaz's character, what we learned in chapter two, that he was a worthy man. And it would be very much out of character for him to have gotten drunk. His heart was merry just simply means that he was in a good mood. And why not? He had a bountiful harvest. His heart was merry. He was eating and drinking and celebrating what God had blessed him with. So he lies down on the threshing room floor, lies down at the grain. And then Ruth follows Naomi's instructions to a T. She approaches him quietly at midnight. She uncovers his feet. And then she lies down. Now, I have to say that I really do appreciate the Bible's subtle sense of humor here in verse 8. Because it says, Boaz is startled to see a woman lying at his feet. Now, if you think about it, it's like if you've ever woken up in the middle of the night, maybe you see a shadow, you're not quite sure what it is. You wake up, whoa, you know, you're like, what is that? And then you realize, oh, okay, it's just the coat rack or whatever. You know, here is Boaz, he's lying down, he's not expecting anything, he's just guarding the grain. And he wakes up in the middle of the night and sees a woman lying there. He's like, whoa, it's like, who are you? And that's what he says. He says, who are you? It's dark. He, doesn't, he can't see very well. Who is this strange woman lying at my feet? And then it says, Ruth answers. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over me, for, I, for you are a redeemer, or you are a close relative. Again, I like redeemer better. Now at this point, Naomi's little matchmaking plan, Ruth is off script. She told her what to do. She says, go uncover his feet, lie down, and then wait for him to tell you what to do. But she's off script now. She says she she uncovers his feet. She lies down. But then she says, you are a redeemer. Spread your wings over me. This is in a sense. uh, Really, it's just it's a marriage proposal is what she's doing here. Perhaps Ruth was uncomfortable with the ambiguity of Naomi's instructions. Maybe she wasn't. She didn't feel comfortable doing what Naomi had suggested that she do. So instead, she then improvises a little bit. And makes her intentions very clear. And again, recall from uh, the last couple chapters, Ruth's reputation preceded her. That's what Boaz said in chapter 2. He says, I've heard about your reputation. I've heard about the kindness you showed your mother-in-law, Naomi, when she was childless and how you accompanied her here. You're, you're, you have a reputation for kindness. And here Naomi or Ruth is not interested in a one-night stand. 
She's boldly making to what amounts to be a marriage proposal. She wants a marriage commitment. In fact, if you recall, last week, Boaz prayed that the Lord would take you under his wings. Ruth is basically saying, okay, why don't you answer your prayer and take me under your wings? Ruth is seeking the refuge of a kinsman redeemer, of a person who is part of the family who will redeem or who will buy back uh, people out of a bad time. But again, if you remember, the idea of a redeemer is one who is a close relative. And if you had to sell your land or if you had to go into indentured servitude to pay off a debt, uh, the redeemer can come and buy back the land or he can come and buy you out of servitude. And that's what he, she's saying here. Be a redeemer. Buy us out of our poor situation. We are widows and our land is going to go to our relatives. We need you to preserve our name. The kinsman redeemer was also obligated to marry family widows. Brothers, this is called leveret marriage in the Old Testament. It is the case in which if a person dies and the, the, the marriage was childless, then that man's brother would be required to come and marry the widow to provide children for the dead brother. Now, Boaz wasn't necessarily obligated in this sense. That's why he says, yes, it is true I am a redeemer, but there is a redeemer who is closer in relation to me. So we will have to see how this goes. That's what she says. Now here we know Ruth is looking for above and beyond kindness that Boaz showed her in chapter 2. Ruth's proposal of marriage basically boils down to a request for Boaz to rescue Naomi and Ruth at great cost to himself. That's what the Redeemer does. He buys the land back, and then what happens is that none of the proceeds of that land go back to him. It is a great cost for him to do this. It is a great cost then to also marry the widow of, of a dead brother because the heirs of that line will continue to inherit what the other brother had. Anything that uh, would come out of this union would then would not go to Boaz. It would go to the child of the, of the union. Now, in verses 10 through 11, Boaz then is floored by Ruth's proposal. Just as Ruth was floored by Boaz's kindness in chapter 2, Boaz is similarly floored by Ruth's kindness here. And he says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Again, notice that tender language as he calls her my daughter. He says, you have made this last kindness greater than the first. Now, what do we mean here? In other words, he's saying, the kindness you just showed me surpasses the kindness that you showed to your mother-in-law earlier. In fact, Boaz acknowledges that Ruth could have gone after younger men. He, she could have gone after far more wealthy men, which probably indicates that Boaz was probably an older gentleman, let's say. In other words, from a human point of view, Ruth had better prospects. She could have married for love. She could have married for money. She could have married for status. But instead, she wants Boaz, a worthy man. She wants to get married for kindness or chesed, his character. In so doing, she confirms Boaz's impression of her that she is indeed a worthy woman. Now, Boaz here declares himself, he says, I am willing both to pay the social cost. Again, he's going to marry a foreigner, a Moabitess. Moabites did not have a good reputation in Israel. And also the financial cost 
the kinsman redeemer idea, this idea of leverant marriage, which would be a great cost to him in marrying Ruth. He's willing to pay both of those costs. But in verses 12 and 13, we see a fly in the ointment, a potential fly in the ointment. If you remember at the beginning, we mentioned about how part of the plot flow of a romantic comedy involves some kind of problem that keeps the two lovers together or separated. Here we see what that problem is. Boaz, as we mentioned a little bit ago, is not the nearest redeemer. He's in the line of succession, but he's not the closest one to Elimelech. Now, Boaz reassures her that no matter what happens, she and Naomi will be cared for. They will be redeemed. They will be taken care of one way or the other. But let's face it. If you're, if you're emotionally invested in the story, you want to see Boaz and Ruth come together, right? I know I sure do. You don't want to see Ruth go off as some nameless redeemer that we don't even know who this guy is. We want these two people to be together. The narrator here is addition, creating an additional amount of dramatic suspense. There is a potential problem that could keep our heroes apart. How will this be resolved? We don't know. Now, again, there are some practical lessons that we can take in these verses regarding marriage. First, it seems clear that even uh, though Naomi's plan was sexually ambiguous, Ruth was laser focused on what she wanted. She wanted a marriage commitment. She didn't want some one night stand and then let things transgress as, as they will. She wanted a marriage commitment. And the lesson here for us is that marriage is the only proper vehicle for sexual intercourse. There is no let's live together and test drive the sex before getting married. But secondly, while there's no biblical prohibition against marrying for love or for money, it does place an emphasis on marrying for character, marriage based on character. Boaz calls Ruth a worthy woman. And this is the exact same language that we read of in Proverbs 31 for the excellent wife, if you're familiar with that passage. An excellent wife, who can find? It's the same word, a worthy woman, who can find? It's also interesting to note that in the, of course, in our Bibles, Ruth is placed after Judges and right before 1 Samuel. But in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is placed after Proverbs. That's the order of the Hebrew canon. Ruth comes right after Proverbs. So right after you're reading Proverbs 31, and you're talking about the worthy woman, the excellent wife, and you see all of her great qualities, how she is industrious, how she's hardworking, how, she, how her husband and her children rise to call her blessed. And then you come into the story of Ruth, and you're shown here an excellent wife, this, uh, Ruth, who is a worthy woman. Now, perhaps the Hebrew scholars are trying to suggest by this ordering that Ruth is that Proverbs 31 woman. We don't know for certain. But more importantly, as we said last week, Boaz here is a picture of Jesus Christ. It was apparent in chapter 2 and now it becomes even more apparent here in chapter 3. I mean, can you think of anyone who at great cost to himself redeemed a people, rescuing them and welcoming them into his family? It's the precious blood of Jesus Christ not only redeems us, but also provides the basis for our adoption into God's family through faith. Well, now as we go into our last scene here of Act 3, verses 14 through 18, we see the flaw in the plan. We kind of saw it a little bit before. 
Uh, but now we're going to talk a little bit more about it. So in verses 14 through 18, first we see that it says that Ruth laid his feet until morning. Now there's different words being used here. So it's showing that there was no hanky-panky going on. There was no sexual things going on here. The word there to remain at his feet just means to lodge, to stay. There's no sexual connotations in the Hebrew. We also see that Boaz, being a worthy man, is concerned for Ruth honor and her reputation. He doesn't send her out at night, which would be very dangerous. Uh, he sends her out early in the morning, says before one can recognize another. In other words, he sends her out early before the town gossips can come and, and see her walking back home from the threshing room floor. You know, the walk of shame, supposedly, that you see in some of these movies. Now, we know that nothing went on during the night, but let's face it, to an outsider, if anyone saw this happening, they might you know, it's exactly what it suggests it looks like. That's what they might conclude. And yet this is a, another gesture of kindness by Boaz to Ruth and that he cares for her reputation. He doesn't want to send her out at a time that could be compromising for her. And notice also in verse 15, he doesn't send her away empty-handed. He sa- it says he pours out six ephahs of barley into the garment that she wore. Even more kindness and generosity from Boaz here. Now, of course, six ephahs of flour. <laughs> Remember last week with the, 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 the seahs or whatever. It's like, what is an ephah here of barley? It's like, well, it, it works out to about 50 to 80 pounds of grain. That's a lot of grain. And Ruth must have been a very strong woman. It's like, I'm sure a lot of you farmers like to have a woman who can walk around with like 80 pounds of grain on her back, you know, just carrying it like Hercules or something, right? But I think there's more going on here. Again, the big concern for both Naomi and Ruth is the redemption of Naomi in finding rest for Ruth. And this generous helping of grain uh, is, a, in a sense, a down payment from Boaz. He has assured her in verse 13 that he would ensure the redemption of Naomi and Ruth, whether by him or the close redeemer. And this gift of barley is, in a sense, like a guarantee. It is a down payment that he will see to it. And after helping Ruth with the load of barley, she goes out into the city. And then she comes home. And the first words out of Ruth's mouth, or out of, Naomi, out of Naomi's mouth when she sees her, is uh, when she came to the daughter, is, is that you, my daughter? She says in verse 16. Other translations would say, how did you fare, my daughter? But it is literally, who are you, my daughter? It's interesting, because I don't think Naomi actually doesn't know who it is. I'm sure she knows it's Ruth. The question she's asking is, how did you do? You went to the threshing floor. Are you now, are you still Ruth, my daughter-in-law? Or are you now Mrs. Boaz? Did you, did you complete the deal here? Did it work? Did you get a husband? And then Ruth reports back on everything that transpired between her and Boaz that night. She also mentions the generous gift of barley with Boaz's instruction. You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. This further underscores Boaz's intention to make good on their redemption. But it also further underscores God's kindness to Naomi. Again, if you recall back to chapter 1, Naomi basically accuses God of being out to get her. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Yet in chapters 2 and 3, we see that Naomi is definitely not empty. God, through the actions of Boaz, has 
provided for Naomi and will continue to provide even more. Now, maybe perhaps Naomi's question to Ruth, who are you, is something that she's been wrestling with for some time now. Who is this woman? Who is this woman that clung to me in Moab and wouldn't leave me alone when I told her to go back home? She's far more than a simple Moabite daughter-in-law. In fact, she has been the vehicle of blessing and kindness from the hand of the Lord. Naomi did not come back empty. She came back full. And of course, Act 3 here ends with suspense, as we mentioned earlier. Naomi's final words of chapter 3 signal that the unresolved nature of the drama that has unfolded. But Naomi and Ruth have planted the seed. Now they have to trust in the Lord to provide the growth. And for that, you'll have to tune in next week to hear how the story ends. Got to build a little dramatic tension, right? Well, earlier on, we mentioned the riskiness of Naomi's plan, and it raises the question, what are we willing to risk and for what? Setting aside for the moment the wisdom of Naomi's plan, it was certainly a bold plan, that is to say the least, right? And what things motivate our boldness? What things motivate our risk-taking? I mean, we all take risks at point of our life, in, in every point of our lives, right? We are all risk takers at some point, at some point in our lives. Perhaps we take a risk for our careers. Perhaps we take a risk for our families. Perhaps some of us are just adrenaline junkies and love taking risks for no apparent reason whatsoever, except for the sheer fun of taking risks. I mean, I for one would never go bungee jumping, I think, but hey, for some people, if that floats your boat, you know, good for them. But whatever it is, we all have that thing or things for which we are willing to put life and limb on the line for. However, what are we willing to risk for the kingdom of God? What are we willing to risk for the gospel? Do we see God's kingdom as risk worthy? Do we see trying to reach the lost with the gospel as a motivation for boldness on our parts? I don't say this to shame anyone, for we all fall short in this area, and I include myself there too. Yet every now and then, I think it is appropriate to take a spiritual inventory of our lives regarding our motivations and our priorities. As we bring this to a close, as we mentioned at the outset, the story of Ruth, in a sense, is a love story, but not in the traditional boy-meets-girl sense of the secular romance novels or stories, but it's a story based on true love. It is a story based on covenant love. It is a story based on hesed, kindness. The attraction between Ruth and Boaz was based on their character, on their worthiness. Marriages based on physical attraction are doomed to die because physical looks, as we all know, will fade with time. I look at myself in the mirror I'm not the same guy I was when I was 20 or 30. And of course, marriages based on material wealth are also doomed to die, for we all know that wealth is fleeting. It's here today, it's gone the next. However, marriages based on character, marriages based on the inward beauty of the soul are the kinds of marriages that last by God's grace. And I'm, again, so blessed to see so many long-lasting marriages in this congregation. 
But as beautiful as the story of Ruth is, even that isn't the real love story here. The real love story in Ruth is the love of God for his people. God betrothed himself to one bride, to one people, and it was Israel. The unfolding drama of redemptive history in the Old Testament is just one story after another of God's covenant faithfulness to his people Israel, despite their unfaithfulness, despite their repeated instances of covenant breaking. God's kindness toward his people is pictured in Ruth's kindness toward Naomi and in Boaz's kindness to Ruth. Of course, the ultimate sign of God's kindness toward his people was in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem his lost and straying sheep. When Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that was not done out of a romantic love, but it was done out of hesed. It was done out of kindness, steadfast love, mercy, covenant love. And just as Boaz was willing to pay the social and financial costs of marrying Ruth, so too Jesus Christ was not only willing, but actually did pay the redemption cost for his bride with his broken body and his shed blood. We often talk about marriage as being a creation institute, something given to us by God at creation and before the fall as opposed to a man-made social construct. And as true as this is, there is a greater mystery behind marriage, one that the Apostle Paul tells us about in Ephesians 5, which is why we read that this morning. And namely, that marriage refers to Christ and the church. It is a love story that started before the foundation of the world, in which the father promised a bride to his son. And in that love story, the son left the glories of heaven, uh, giving up everything, to redeem his bride, to spread his wings over her. Do you know this love? Have you asked Jesus Christ to spread his wings over you and cover you with his perfect righteousness? Have you confessed your sin before God and in faith placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation? Doing so allows us to be recipients of God's kindness and to be welcomed into his family. Let's pray.